From McKinsey's business building practice, Leap, I'm Andrew Roth, and welcome to The Venture, a series featuring conversations with legendary venture builders in Asia about how to design, launch, and scale new businesses. In each episode, we cut through the noise to bring practical advice on how leaders can build successful businesses from scratch. Welcome to another episode of The Venture. For our 11th episode, I'm excited to share a conversation with JJ Chai, CEO and co-founder of Rainforest, a Singapore-based e-commerce brain aggregator that operates across Amazon's home, pets, and personal care spaces. You'll hear JJ tell us the importance of a programmatic approach to acquiring and scaling brands, how Amazon's phenomenally expanding marketplace can generate millions even for ultra-niche products, and the multiple advantages of business building on the world's largest e-commerce platform. At the end of our conversation, Thomas Laboka and I discuss the key elements in JJ's growth story, which you can apply to your business building activities. There's a lot to cover. Welcome, JJ. Great to have you on the show. Great to be on the show. Thanks for having me. So you and your co-founders have launched Rainforest to buy brands that are selling on Amazon. I've read that you've estimated that 30% of Amazon sellers are, are based in Asia. Talk us through a little bit about how you decided to start Rainforest. You know, you and I met a long time ago when you were driving growth at Airbnb, and then you went on to Carousel. So curious to see how you decided to start Rainforest. Yeah, I think one of the biggest challenges about launching a venture is the the zero to one cliff, uh, which is the, like you start something from this idea to actually having someone actually like the product and willing to pay for the product. It's also always sort of one of the sort of more difficult things to cross when you launch a new venture. And I always wanted to start something, but like always had was trying to figure out how to sort of manage that risk. So when this business model came around where there was this opportunity to sort of do a bit of a buy and build play, uh, it was very attractive to me. I had sort of taken something that was sort of worked at Airbnb and scaled it up. I've taken something that sort of worked at Carousel and scaled it up to more countries, more verticals. That's what made it super interesting for me to, to dive into this. You're looking at basically sellers on the Amazon US marketplace, right? That are, I think what you've described as solopreneurs. Tell us a little bit about the these sellers and their profiles and, and how you're targeting them? Yeah, the phenomenon that we see is that, like that this explosion of this ability of people, individuals to actually create their own brands in the product world, right? It used to be because of the app store, you have uh, individuals able to sort of create uh, software individually, like uh, the classic case of Flappy Birds in Vietnam, solo product developer creates an app that makes millions. The same thing has now happened in the product world. And there's about two to three million third party sellers on the Amazon ecosystem globally, creating their own products, creating their own brands and selling to on Amazon. What we do here is we uh, acquire brands from uh, these uh, entrepreneurs who, who have kept out around the, the ability to scale up the brand. So they've started three years ago, 10,000 uh, capital put in, created something. And then last year selling $2 million of some product but not able or not willing to actually uh, build a company around that brand and product. Right? So a great, small, almost like a mom and pop business of sorts online. And we give them a nice exit and we take the brand to its full potential. Got it. So you, in your evaluation of these, these sellers on Amazon, you're looking at things like their ratings, reviews, rankings to decide how to target them. You've told me in the past about a, a salt and pepper shaker company. You know, Tell me about you were why you were evaluating a salt and pepper shaker company. <laughs> yeah, this was a husband-wife team who actually launched a salt and pepper shaker brand, one of those like fancy ones where you click a button and it sort of auto-grinds the salt and pepper. 
started off bootstrap their own funds into it and uh, i think under the last uh, 12 months sort of about 1.6 million dollars of salt and pepper shakers uh, sits here in singapore sources from china sells to us so it like uh, spends about what 20 hours a week uh, doing some amount of customer service and managing the, the inventory but started off with a soft good quality product source well uh, just good customer service and over time most important for us is the reviews and ratings that they have on uh, amazon and because of either sort of being early or being good, his brand ranks sort of one of the top few in that in that specific niche and continues to sell very, very effectively there. And, you know, those kinds of the brands are, that we are most interested in, very strong reviews, ratings, and has a has a strong moat on Amazon at least. So you in the long run, you didn't, you decided to pass or you didn't acquire this particular company, but they were a part of your process, I would say. Yeah, it's one of the hundreds of brands that we've seen, uh, one of the more attractive ones. Unfortunately, we couldn't uh, come around to the direct pricing for this that made sense as well. We have another one where we sort of uh, acquired from entrepreneurs from an entrepreneur in Singapore who went for an Amazon course, uh, entered into sort of the beddings category and created a few sort of unique beddings products and was doing about 1.5 million of sales. And we acquired it for 1.1 million. That's one of the first few acquisitions that we did. So this was one of the most surprising things before I was digging into the rainforest model is that I thought we were going to have a conversation about how you're finding sellers on the Southeast Asia marketplaces like a Tokopedia or Shopee, right? And you're solely focused on Amazon sellers that could be based in Singapore, but selling exclusively in the U.S. market or focusing at least on the U.S. market. I was really shocked by that. I didn't realize how many Asia-based sellers were, were focusing on making a life, making a business from Singapore to the U.S. Is this your sole focus? For us, we are focused on acquiring uh, Amazon brands based out of uh, this part of the world, actually not just Southeast Asia, but broader Asia Pacific, including China. The reason for this is that like, the idea of a brand and protection for a brand on the Amazon ecosystem is, is very, very uh, established. If you sort of create your own uh, Andrews like coffee marks, right? like, uh, and you sort of create a trademark, no one can actually sort of uh, copy that and sort of pass off as, as your, your coffee marks uh, on that platform. And all the reviews and ratings that you get like accrue to, to your coffee mug uh, brand and whatever design you've created. And, and no one can sort of take that away. And that's, that's an important part of the acquisition process, which is there is some sort of value over time uh, that you've sort of created, but through the rankings, review, and the ratings that you have on the platform. This, unfortunately, is not yet quite true in this part of the world. A lot of, you know, saw a lot of review buying, paid reviews, uh, and uh, more importantly, the, the structure of the marketplaces here are sort of a lot more structured towards price, the price buyer, which is, it's all about your 6-6 sale, 7-7 sale. The ranking algorithms uh, promote price and not yet enough protection for, for brands. So I think it will change over time. But like right now, one of the sort of biggest challenges for sort of acquiring a brand is that like, you know, there's not too many of them private label brands on the platform. And the reason why there's not too many of them is because there's sort of no uh, inherent sort of value from doing, doing that at this point. I think it will change over time, but like uh, today is quite early for that. Right. So maybe a, a little bit nascent in this part of the world and you, you value the trust factor, it sounds like, or the, the, how the, the playing field is leveled uh, a little bit over the perhaps risk taken out. Exactly, right? Like if you sort of buy a business on the soft platforms in this part of the world that are selling on these marketplaces, they are typically good businesses. The best seller for uh, salt and pepper shakers on uh, Lazada or Shopee today in uh, you know, Indonesia may not be that in the next six months. Uh, it, there's, no, there's no reason to believe they will be. Whereas on, on Amazon, the brand, the reviews accrue 
actually means something, it's also reflected in the algorithms and, you know, they take good steps to sort of prevent your, your brand from being uh, uh, reused or like uh, pirated and so on. So let's dig into that. So you're talking about this betting company, right? You make the acquisition and, you know, you go through your process of vetting them. You start rolling them into your own capabilities. And I would imagine across product sourcing, supply chain, et cetera. Tell us how you are integrating your acquisitions. And then now I would imagine getting to the harder part, which is, you know, revving up the execution. The reason why this model is uh, quite attractive is that like, uh, especially with Amazon and Specifically, the, the segment of Amazon called Amazon FBA brands, fulfilled by Amazon. So these are brands that sort of rely on Amazon to do the fulfillment, the uh, returns, and so on. Uh, it's a solo entrepreneur. The total sum uh, amount of assets that needs to be transferred over is the, the Amazon account, the rights to the inventory, the trademarks, uh, some, you know, a few others of social media accounts and so on, and the supplier contracts and uh, agreements. So it, it's a very light process and can be done at scale, right? And there's no, no employees transferring over, no warehouses, no hard assets that we need to do. So we, we do a, we typically complete acquisition from start to end, like, uh, below 60 days, uh, and, and getting shorter at that as well. Um, on your second part of it, which is like, okay, now, you know, what are the sort of like, what actually happens when they sort of come under the rainforest umbrella, right? So the idea is that like each one of these brands is a nice sapling, uh, sort of a, a core of a brand. We intend to sort of grow them into sort of full-blown uh, big trees and then, of course, be part of the rich uh, forest ecosystem that we have. The important thing to note is that it's a solo entrepreneur, right? So therefore, they, they don't necessarily get... They're pretty good at creating ideas and so on. They usually won't have everything right across from supply chain, sourcing, product design, marketplace management, digital marketing, and so on. And they will suffer from the basics of stockouts, right? Like even the hero products get stockouts to not organizing the supply chain well, such that like, you know, they're sending to the wrong port, uh, not using the rough, right tariff codes, not sourcing from the right kind of uh, manufacturers for the best kind of cost, or not organizing their supply chain in a way that prevents uh, copycats in the right way. We provide across the full value chain with specialists on board or external agencies, and we can afford to do that, again, just from the scale that we have. So you have a playbook. It sounds like the integration is fairly straightforward because they're solopreneurs. and then. You take the brand, you put them into sort of uh, your playbook across product sourcing, marketing, optimizing how they're presented, even photos, I would imagine, really tuning things up. Yeah, so we have a checklist for our brand managers uh, and sort of the inbound. So it's, it, there's a migration process of over one or two weeks where the sort of entrepreneurs pass over and migrate the, the brands over to our brand managers. Our in-house brand managers then actually... We typically have already uh, sort of identified like big chunky items of like where the biggest opportunities are. But once our brand manager takes it over, they go through the full uh, sort of checklist across each of the domains and then work through each of these. Of course, working through the sort of the most, the most critical and the most sort of uh, long lead time ones, which is typically stabilizing uh, inventory and uh, making sure there's no stockouts like at least, you know, one and a half months onwards from now. And then everything around like uh, improving your PPC keywords storefront using videos and using all the sort of products available on Amazon as well as off Amazon to optimize sales. So JJ, it seems like with the portfolio you're starting to build, you're creating a lot of, you're bringing a lot of capabilities to, to start driving the growth across a, an array of different verticals. And large incumbents 
are trying to figure out things similar, perhaps at a, a larger scale. And there's a lot of talk in the marketplace on building ecosystems and how do you drive growth. And it, often for the incumbents, it can seem kind of theoretical. Walk us through a little bit about your long-term vision of building your own quote-unquote ecosystem. Is there a specific segment strategy you have in mind? Yeah, I think the, the, there's two, two parts to the answer. I think one part about it is sort of like being really quite programmatic about the acquisitions part of things and uh, having a clear sort of uh, portfolio uh, lens, right? So we, I think a lot, of, there are so sort of many players in, in our space and they all have slightly different variations about how they think about it. For us, uh, we're looking at the home pets and personal care categories. We are looking for Amazon first uh, brands. Uh, they don't need to be all on Amazon, but like uh, we like some anchor uh, on a big ecosystem that's uh, well established. And they have some hero products that are category leaders or category challengers in their niche. Like salt pepper shaker is one example, but everything from pet bowls to like uh, toilet brushes, all, all in play uh, in the home category. And we'll build up from there, which is like we intend to sort of take it out to new platforms, new geographies, as well as like expanding, what other sort of adjacent products can we sort of grow from there, right? So that's the sort of like acquisition side of things, which is finding a sort of nascent uh, brand that has good potential, and then going to the second part of it, which is then uh, being programmatic about the sort of the growth levers, which is okay. Here are the sort of like the checklist. Let's work through them. The, the sort of tricky part that like for us as well as any any sort of like big CPG brands is really around the product innovation, right? And that that's the sort of trickier part but the good part about how we how we have structured this is that like you know because they're sort of stable products already sort of generating strong cash flows uh we can invest into the that the sort of cracking the next version of the sort of pepper shaker or like the next type of products so i think that one will still fall in the realm of you know sort of testing learning and sort of listening to the consumer side of things being programmatic about acquisitions being programmatic about growth mastering both sides and in terms of ecosystem if you had a look five years down the road across, you know, home pets, personal care, what are you going to be doing? Are you launching your own private label brands? Are you going to weigh on one of those sectors more than another? Is there a initial hypothesis that you have? Hard to tell. I think it's still a bit too early. We're likely to have a portfolio ac across like those three sectors, uh, three, three uh, categories, a portfolio of brands that sort of are very much clustered around uh, those areas. All, all sub brands, they will likely stay within their own, you know, sort of a specific niche. But over time, uh, where we sort of see gaps in the in the soft, you know, if you think about the bedroom, right? Like, what else in the bedroom are we not providing? Yeah, it makes sense for us to sort of launch uh, new products into that category, or specifically go out to look for a, a category leader that will sort of complete that that niche for us. Right? So that's the that's the idea over time that we sort of have a full portfolio that can fill your bedroom, your kitchen, uh, one one area at a time. One area at a time, and. Just, just curious about number of acquisitions. Are you, you know, year one, year two, specific targets? Just, just curious how how many you're going for. I, I think we we can see like like all good startups. We can always see it, and we have a three year plan. The reality, like anything below below twelve months, is a a bit of arbitrary number. But I think th this year we'll do about eight to twelve acquisitions. Uh, next year we'll likely double that, and also double with probably larger acquisitions as well. Yeah, in terms of larger acquisitions and, and sort of, I would imagine you mentioned there are a lot of players starting to get into this space. One thing incumbents, when they start thinking about launching a new venture, sometimes they get caught up a little bit in worrying about the competition. You know, you know, the, what if the 800 pound gorilla comes into our niche or our space? What are we going to do? From a startup perspective, you know, from your own personal perspective, what happens when one of the big players comes in into your space, like a Thrasio or, or someone else? How do you explain that to a 
an investor, for example? Yeah, I know. I think this is one of the sort of common questions. Like, it's a bit like obvious, right? Like, a lot, you should go for large market size. But to give you a sense of like what it means to be large market size on Amazon, like Amazon's third party uh, GMV last year was 300 billion in size. They added 90 billion of that in one year. That's one and a half Southeast Asia e-commerce uh, GMV in one year, right? Like, so it, it, this is why you can have like a, a, a super niche product, saw and purple shaker selling. He's not even a category. He's not even has 100% of category. He sells 1.6 million, right? So you can, you can take a super narrow niche and actually like, uh, uh, make a sizable business out of it. And that is also true around the, the competition, which is like, you can have, uh, I think in the, in this space, about three, over three billion raised to acquire, uh, brands on Amazon today. But that's still, uh, less than 2% of to- Amazon's total GMV. And in a market where they're going to grow another 100 billion or at least uh, this year again. So yes, there's competition, but like when you sort of think about the space, I think it matters. Every, and everyone has their own source, different flavors, different geographies, different categories, different uh, lens of what they do to brands. So I, I do think it's one of those things where it seems like a hot space or sort of seems uh, interesting and lots of players go, to, go into it. But you will find that like everyone will have their own niche uh, and segments that are slightly different. And you know, there's still a lot of space. Yeah, it's a good reminder. It's it's a huge market. The pie is big enough, and it's it's more. I guess you're racing against time, perhaps more than uh, worrying about competition. Yeah, it's time. It's about like uh, building the capabilities, actually, because at the end of the day, like acquisition is where there is some competition, right? Like the supply demand thing actually over time works out pretty well, which is that we start seeing more people willing to come out and sell their brand. There's, uh, I think, on the last stats from Amazon, there's about a few thousand new sellers coming on board every day. I think that now it's about 60% of that in APEC with a with high concentration in China. But like every day, they solve all these new entrepreneurs as well. So as sort of demand comes up for sort of new brands, you also see that like, hey, you know, people realizing that like, I, I could start, I could actually set up a, a salt and pepper shaker product you know, and uh, with 10,000 of capital and make it into a million dollar brand. Like, I didn't know that. Your story about the salt and pepper shaker kind of like kept me up at night. got to got to admit, I was thinking about that. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I mean, like we have, yeah, our, our, our most recent conversation is uh, yesterday was with, uh, with a lady who, who created his own, uh, her own yoga, like aerial yoga uh, equipment brand, right? Like, uh, you know, it's a, it's a smaller brand, but like, you know, she was doing it because of her own interest in it and has been doing, she's a data scientist in the day. She's a, she's a yoga equipment seller uh, on Amazon in the, in the night. <laughs> Incredible. So you're in your your first year. You've you've acquired three companies now, right? Or three or th- th- three or three four brands companies in three two brands. acquisitions. Uh, we've got two or three more in the due diligence phase. Yeah. And then I would imagine that then the hard work kind of starts, right? You're programmatic about the acquisition. Then you've got to lift sales and, and grow these brands. Tell us a little bit. Look, who are your next five, ten hires? You know, give us a little bit of idea of the kind of capabilities you're looking to. To bring onto the team to scale up these brands, yeah. So the first type of hires we get are uh, sort of uh, generalists. So someone who sort of understands the full stack around, like you know, you can. Uh, do you know how to WeChat a supplier in China and get a good price and maintain a relationship with that person? So we get generalists to sort of take over the brand that knows uh, how to run e-commerce brands. Then we supplement that with sort of specialists, which is like uh, someone who's actually who knows how to actually source alternative bedding products from China or India. Uh, and a bit of a more resilient supply chain in there. We hire a specialist in product design, like look through the reviews, take us, take, you know, see what are some of the most common 
complaints and like uh, what should the next version of the product look like? Uh, and so I do prototypes of that to digital marketing, which is like, hey, here's how you can sort of, uh, you know, improve your uh, return on advertising uh, spend on Amazon as well as like, you know, could we test new channels and so on. So in every part of this end-to-end chain of like sourcing, supply chain, product development, marketplace, management, as well as advertising, there's a specialist. And then across that, there's a horizontal piece, which is around international expansion. So these brands are typically, when we acquire them, are typically US only or very heavy on US. And there's also an expansion into Europe. What does that mean? It means, uh, you know, for bedding products, different bed sizes, you know, adjust to it, like uh, different terms and wordings and so on, and permits uh, and so on. And then to Asia, what does that mean? It's sort of an internationalization uh, capabilities and team that helps bring your brand to, to these markets as well. Oh, I, li- I like that framing. The big takeaway for an incumbent who might be listening, who's trying to start their own, to start a new venture within a large organization is to look at sort of the, the speed and scale of, of the programmatic acquisition process of the programmatic scale of the brand. And um, yeah, perhaps incumbents will start thinking maybe a, a mini acquisitions to get started in whatever industry, whatever vertical they're in to, to get going. And then, then again, the hard work starts with the execution and, and the scaling. But a lot of incumbents get stuck in sort of this uh, analysis paralysis of where to play versus what you're doing, which is, okay, let's, let's take the risk out. Let's just start buying brands that have great potential. Yeah, I mean, we, we have the luxury of being a bit green fuel, so we get, get to start that. Like, uh, but like even in, you know, in the last two sort of ventures I've been into, whether it's Carousel or, or Airbnb, um, mergers and acquisitions is a, it's a big part of strategy. So, so not, it's not obvious to people, but startups also do M&As. Uh, and it's a big part of a uh, strategic moves. It's, it's one of the more interesting sort of like big strategic moves you can make to actually go, go into a new category, a new vertical or new geography, right? Like, so, uh, in Carousel, we entered new geographies by sort of acquiring Telenor's assets in, in Vietnam and Malaysia to do that. We also sort of do made some mini acquisitions in cars to enter the new categories in cars. At Airbnb, there were acquisitions in the sort of like experiences space. Of course, not all, all the sort of difficulties that come with it, especially with like uh, larger ones where there's post-merger side of things. But it is definitely a valid lever to pull for for growth. Yeah, I mean, it sounds a little bit more than just a, a valid lever, but almost like a must-have yeah. in the playbook out here, uh, especially when you're in a, in a market like in Southeast Asia with so many countries have different policies and different ways to attack the market. We could probably have an episode just about that, uh, you know, expansion yeah, and, that's and huge, growth. Yeah. So just kind of winding down here now, JJ, anything, did we miss anything? Any additional questions you'd wish I'd asked? Well, I, I think on the sort of like, you know, I think we talked a lot about the, all the capabilities part of things. I think the, there's also one important component, uh, at least in, in our industry or this space is really around the like sort of capital structure side of things, right? Which is like, how do you sort of like uh, capitalize and set up for for doing this, right? We, because which is okay, very clear, right? We need to be good at acquiring and we need to be going and create, growing the brands. But just as importantly, we need to sort of be able to sort of like get structure our cost of capital such that like, you know, we can, we can like beat the, beat the cost of capital in our deployment. Uh, for us, it's going to be, you know, as a new organization, you know, it's, uh, that's not, not going to come cheap. It'll get better over time. But, uh, that's also another thing to sort of uh, think about is which, how do you capitalize how much debt? And uh, how much equity and like, you know, what's the expected returns there? Like, uh, Take us a little bit through your cap table then. I mean, and the way you're structured, you know, because I, I would imagine you recently raised a 30 million plus round. A lot of it was debt, correct? Yeah. So it's, we raised six and a half million in just uh, on, the, on the equity side of things, right? Like that goes on a balance sheet. 
And then we've got 30 million uh, debt facility that we draw down as we make the acquisition. So they, they, they don't they just sit on our balance sheet, you know, co costing us. It's of a structure as a facility is drawn down uh, when we need to incur interest over a four-year period uh, and we sort of pay it down in that time. And allows us to sort of do acquisitions at a at a ratio of roughly about one to three, which is like you know a dollar comes from our balance sheet and then three dollars from the debt side of things uh, to make the acquisitions. Uh, that's important, right? Because if you sort of funded it with predominantly equity, uh, very different sort of expectation and cost and and founders risk and founders risk you probably risk, get diluted pretty quick. <laughs> dilution and all the stuff in there. But like to ensure, you know, I think keeping like what is the return on equity that you want and like, you know, how do you sort of use that in a smart way to, to get that, those kind of returns. Great point. Thanks so much, JJ. Glad to have you on the show and uh, look forward to seeing more from Rainforest. Awesome. Thanks so much, Andrew. Now comes a segment where we invite founders and experts from McKinsey to provide more context and to draw practical insights. And again, I'm joined by my colleague, Thomas Labotka from McKinsey's business building practice, Leap. So Thomas, I was really interested in Rainforest because of how they're entering the e-commerce space through, through acquisitions. And we're seeing lots of incumbents in this region, at least, that are designing their own e-commerce platforms, marketplaces, et cetera. And now you've got a startup like Rainforest coming in to aggregate and consolidate sellers on, on marketplaces like Amazon. And it seems to be a huge space now with, with players like Thrasio in North America. was curious on what your take on the industry is. It's a great question, right? I think the industry is huge and it's really poised to grow. The numbers which AJ mentioned, the fact that this part of the business for Amazon grew 1.5 times bigger than the whole e-commerce in Southeast Asia really defines the whole game. And the fact that he then looked into the huge market, looked into where the customers that are ready to pay and where the brand building and the differentiation around those brands, the most that you can build really stack up on the ranking, on the rating and reviews and the customer support that you can build as a seller. That uniqueness of, of Amazon really, I think, helped JJ define the growth play. And I think with that, Combining with the unfair advantage that he had uh, built from Carousel or from Airbnb, he was, he was able to quickly identify the capabilities that are required to tackle and ad address the solopreneurs that are building those unique brands that are performing in, in those markets. And that, I think, is really outstanding. Yeah, I mean, I was, I was surprised the most about his sole focus on finding solopreneurs in Asia that are focusing strictly on Amazon the U.S. marketplace. I thought we were going to be talking about, you know, Shopee, Tokopedia, Lazada marketplaces. And it's such a nascent market that he's finding solopreneurs to acquire that are, that are based in Singapore, like the salt and pepper shaker company. And he talks about sort of his programmatic approach to acquiring businesses. And then, like you're mentioning, bringing his experience from, from Carousel and Airbnb to scale them. What are some of the, the main challenges you're seeing incumbents when they jump into e-commerce? What are some of the, the challenging capabilities or, or gaps that you're, you're finding in, in this part of the world? The first things first is to figure out the right products. And I think this is the first hurdle and first wall that many hit, right? So how do you really innovate on the product that can reach product market fill and do that at scale? That's a really tricky part. The second e-commerce hurdle is, is uh, looking into the product channel fit. So how do you actually find the right distribution channels that scale, right? And that makes sense from uh, unit economics. 
I think quite specifically in this type of business that I've seen with some of the businesses that I'm close to, it's say the real-time visibility into inventory. Yeah, the in- inventory management is something that you know the consumer is not really seeing, but it drives a lot of the, the operations and sales for e-commerce player. And you know whether you do consolidated distribution at, at one warehouse or you have sort of this hub and spoke model where you've got fulfillment centers across multiple warehouses, especially depending on what region or country you're serving, it can get very complex. Maybe you can expand a little bit on the, the distribution side. Yeah, I think what's what's critical is is to really understand what do you optimize for, right? So when when you're looking into the scalability of each of the channel, you you want to understand what are the trade-offs that you're making and how would the the early traction that you that you gain translate into an ongoing growth, right? As an incumbent or as a corporate to uh, distribute your new product to the customers at scale that nobody else can and you have a full control of. And this is one of the unfair advantages that I'm really excited about uh, when, when you start scaling uh, at, 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 together with our clients and together with many of the uh, venture builders out there. So Thomas, we often talk to incumbents about de-risking business building and we, we throw around terms like minimum viable product. And JJ's found another obviously interesting way to de-risk business building by coming up with a programmatic way to acquire businesses to take the risk out and then to inject it with capabilities to scale. What, what are your thoughts on this and uh, how to reach product market fit? I love it. It's such a smart way, right? When we talk about the minimum viable product, we talk a lot and, uh, about the MVP graveyard, right? So this, I have an idea and before it really hits the product market fit, uh, you know, you, you kind of miss it. It's very hard to go over the first hurdle. And I find that, you know, JJ is very clever in understanding what is it that um, he has that is his unfair advantage, his secret recipe that he can bring to uh, the businesses that already have the initial product market fit. But he, he has this recipe, he has this checklist, and he comes to them and says, look, I understand where you are, why don't I give you an exit, and I, I take it to the next level. And I think it's, it's really inspiring when you think about what are all the other companies and venture builders that could do with their own secret recipes, with their own playbooks. And with that, start building your own ecosystem, your own jungle or rainforest. Yeah, and it, and it kind of hits on the two different types of entrepreneurs that we see. You know, you, you have entrepreneurs that design some breakthrough model or solve some, some problem. And then you have entrepreneurs that are focused on, on execution. And incumbents sometimes get caught up too much on trying to think of the next, you know, breakthrough business model versus just leveraging their advantages and, and to execute. And I'm hoping to see incumbents take a bit more risk or more of a portfolio approach on business building on the, on the latter part. You know, just take ideas that exist and, and localize them. And, and we've heard it on the show, right, from everyone from Caro to Ninjavan to, to Shopback. You know, they, they draw on a business model that's worked, they localize it, and then they, they scale it. What are your thoughts on, on how incumbents are approaching this right now? Are they, are they overthinking it? If you start it from the innovation part, something that also JJ allures to, um, it is not easy. And it's not easy when you are 10, 20, 30 years from the point where you actually really, really innovated, right? So like many of the larger players have, have their breakthrough quite some time ago and the muscle to innovate and to, to really go from zero to somewhere, it might be might have atrophied a bit, much unlike the deep capability building in uh, whether it's functional or industry angle. And th- this really might play into the cards of a bit of a portfolio, looking 
getting into the areas where you, you could leverage this this one right strong arm on supply chain or left puncher on growth marketing or uh, maybe it's it's a distribution that you have across the region and and that i think could be the winning recipe for many okay so let's switch gears then from some of the capabilities to what what many incumbents start to perhaps focus too much on which is competition you know we heard jj basically say look the marketplace the total addressable market for aggregators is big right now and you can focus on niche companies to acquire there's there's plenty of room in this market and you're an entrepreneur yourself thomas a founder yourself what what's your take on on the amount of attention uh, you should give to a competition i like jj's confidence and i think it's exactly the right answer um, uh, to, to, to say. Um, but I think from uh, the, any, any other entrance perspective, um, I would ask myself the first things first, right? So what is my, my clear vision in playing in this uh, new ecosystem? What can I do better than anybody else? How am I going to serve my customers? And then uh, really be clear on, on how and why do I have the right to play? That, I think, is the step one. The step two is to be programmatic in the approach and um, have some sort of a checklist, right? It's this playbook that you bring to your uh, to the, each of the stakeholders, to the, to the prospective companies you want to work with, and and understand on how is your checklist different, right? How are you bringing the capabilities or the unfair advantages that you have so that you can fly through the actual execution and truly boost the new acquirers? Yeah, so you're saying you're saying in terms of competition, you just stay focused on execution. It, it sounds like. Yeah, I think first is be clear on where you play, right? So where competition is a too broad of a of a term in a, such a huge space, and I think it's always a little dangerous when you start looking left and right and maybe be a bit too opportunistic and and start jumping all over. I think having a clear thesis that is backed on what can I do really better than anybody else and then execute and don't get distracted by and the next shiny thing that pops up? Well, it's, a, it's an exciting space, this idea of aggregating uh, solopreneurs on marketplaces. And it's sort of a, a window into the, the demand, the types of consumer demand that's going up in, in different categories. JJ's focused on health and items that don't require lots of moving parts like electronics. And it'll be fun to keep an eye on this space. Thanks, Thomas, for, for joining Thank you, Andrew. Always fun. You have been listening to The Venture with me, Andrew Roth. If you like what you've heard, subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to leave a review and rating on your favorite episode. We will be back with a brand new episode next month.